This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Virtually explore collections around the nation at artuk.org. If you like to socialize, you can find us on your favorite social media channel. I'm at Farron Gibson, and Art UK is on at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. Think about some of your favorite childhood tales like the three little pigs or the tortoise and the hare. Many of the stories we tell around the world involve animals, giving them human traits to convey ideas and moralistic lessons. These trends can be seen in art as well, and paintings of animals can be traced back thousands of years. Some of the oldest examples are in the caves at Lascaux, which are 17,000 years old and portray stags, cattle, horses, and many other species. There are different theories and for a long while, for instance, my generation grew up with the idea that what was painted on cave walls was pretty much a shopping list. So imagine the caveman thinking, I want bison. I draw bison on the wall and I go outside and bison appears. I, you know, hunt it and eat it. Those theories have been discounted as simplistic and more recently, animals on cave walls have been associated through uh, shamanistic rituals and storytelling. That's Giovanni Aloy, educator, curator, and editor-in-chief of Antennae, the Journal of Nature and Visual Culture. What's, I think, interesting about the idea of narration is that we find an animal that appears as a subject capable of communicating with humans. So as certain theories have it, shamans would be performing shamanic rituals, eventually falling into a trance. And upon waking up, they would be telling the rest of the community what they encountered through a journey in the afterworld and what animals told the shaman. The shaman was the connection between the natural world and the rest of humans. The use of animals in Western European art changes across time where we can observe different social, religious, and political associations with animals across different locations and periods. Let's skip ahead to the Middle Ages and explore the beautiful illustrated books known as bestiaries. Bestiaries were the most popular books of the Middle Ages, not that there were that many to choose from, but nonetheless, a very interesting moment in which animals serve entirely symbolic religious meanings. So the bestiarium was a religious book in which animals played moral roles in order to teach us how to be human. And the illustrations on bestiaries are absolutely outstanding, and yet the animals are represented in very fantastical ways. They don't necessarily need to look realistic because the purpose of the book ultimately isn't to teach us about animals. So lions can be purple, camels can be blue, the body shapes are not accurate, but that's beyond the point of what bestiaries are meant to do. One of the uh, things that I find fascinating about bestiaries is that, however, they set up the blueprint for natural history later on. The book becomes the most important tool through which you can study nature. And the juxtaposition of text and pictures of animals originates from the bestiarium rather than later on from the natural history books. As we move into the Renaissance period, we see a movement towards greater realism in the portrayal of animals. Albert Durer created an etching of an Indian rhinoceros from a written description, and while it's not entirely accurate, it was fairly close and shaped European ideas of rhinoceroses for centuries, only supplanted by images of the celebrity rhino, Clara, in the 18th century. 
In England, another German painter, Hans Holbein the Younger, offers an example of a cryptic use of animals in paintings with the portrait, a lady with a squirrel and a starling. Animals played many different roles as well in the Renaissance. Leonardo and Dürer look at animals to represent them better in, in a more realistic fashion in their work. But there's also the emblematic tradition that plays a big role in the paintings of the Renaissance. And Hans Holbein is one of the best artists when it comes to the representation of animals. He had developed a very beautiful, realistic style. In the painting called The Lady with a Squirrel and a Starling, we see the importance of emblematic animals at play in that animatic way. You know, when we look at this beautiful painting, there's a traditional Renaissance portrait of a lady that somehow ends up holding a squirrel by the chain. And right above her right shoulder, there's a starling looking at her. And for a long time, it was pretty difficult to explain what the symbolism of these animals should be or, or do within the painting. You know, animal symbolism is not something that's easy to unpack and universally read. It's not something that has uh, an explanation across time where you can say the squirrel symbolized this every single time we see it in a painting. Sometimes animals end up in paintings because the commissioner likes the animal specifically uh, and therefore requests the representation of that animal, or sometimes just because there is a history that we will never unpack. And in this case, it was eventually worked out that the squirrel was actually part of the coat of arms of the Lowell family. So the lady is basically holding the, the coat of arms of the family. But the interesting detail here is the starling. And the starling is actually coming from the pronunciation of East Harling, which was where the family lived. And at the time, East Harling was pronounced as one word. So it sounded phonetically as East Starling, which then suggests a starling. That stride towards realism we can observe during the Renaissance continued into the Baroque period and really shines in the works of Dutch Golden Age artists. Rachel Royce is an example of an artist who excelled at vibrant still-life paintings of flowers. On closer inspection of some of her paintings, one can observe butterflies, frogs, snails, and other insects nestled amongst the petals and leaves. Another still-life theme that put animals more to the fore were hunting and market stall scenes. Flemish painter Franz Snyders was one of the earlier specialists in this area, which became popular during the Baroque period. It became popular for a number of reasons. First of all, the Protestant Reformation prevented artists from painting religious scenes, and using animals as symbolic vehicles of Christian teachings became one of the most popular ways in which certain content could be displayed. So the animals that we see on the market stall don't just represent wealth and abundance and the power of the landowners who could provide game, but also have symbolic values that are associated directly with Christianity. Doves most often symbolize the Holy Spirit, and boars tend to symbolize gluttony. Peacocks symbolize resurrection. And perhaps the most interesting symbol that appears recurringly on the tables of Snyder is the swan. The swan symbolized betrayal, which might be a surprise to us since today we think of the swan as elegance and love. But the association with betrayal came from the color of the feathers, which is pure white, and the color of the skin, which is black. So once plucked, the animal would reveal its real identity, it was claimed. 
And uh, one of the things that's important about symbolism and animals at this point is that it objectifies the animal to tell a story that it's wholly human. Of course, nobody in the natural history subjects would say that gluttony is associated with boars or that doves represent the Holy Spirit. But it's a way in which we have used animals as vehicle to tell human stories and through which we have, in a way, diminished animals and represented them for reasons that have got nothing to do with them. Aside from these religious subtexts, paintings of hunting and game could have social connotations commenting on power and status. This is a very important aspect of our interest in the representation of animals. When we think about Leonardo and Dürer, we think about a desire to know animal anatomy in order to represent the animals properly and accurately in bigger paintings. But when it comes to hunting scenes, the concept is shift to a power paradigm where usually hunting scenes are commissioned by those who hunt and they're commissioned as a memento. It's a memory of an event. But also, of course, during the history of Europe, Renaissance and Baroque, we're looking at very rich figures, you know, princes and landowners and kings who were able to hunt and therefore wanted to immortalize their power in the scenes that usually involved many wild animals that were kept on their land and action, you know, men on, on horses chasing deers. It's, it's, it's a genre in itself. When we move up in time during the Baroque period, the still life with dead animals on tables are very much the aftermath of the hunting scenes we saw earlier in the Renaissance. And they carry the same symbolic meaning. They represent the power of the landowner and they exemplify the wealth, the ability to kill and consume animals and also to obtain fur, which was another mark of distinction, particularly specific to royalty. One of the most noted animal painters in the history of art is George Stubbs. His most famous painting, Whistle Jacket, found in the National Gallery in London, focuses on a particular racehorse and dedicates space to an animal in a way that had not been done in painting before. One of the most important things about Whistle Jacket is that the, the canvas is huge. It's over nine feet by eight. And that was very unusual in the representation of animals. Italian academies originally during the uh, 17th century began to structure a hierarchy of genres. It was driven by Christianity, history, and what more essentially we can call anthropocentrism. So the idea that we are at the center, we are the most important things on this planet, so we should put ourselves first. This is, of course, part of the tragedy of where we're at now with climate change. And uh, in 1669, the art theorician André Philippienne uh, theorized what the uh, Italian academicians had already pretty much actuated, which is the hierarchy of genres. They put at the very top history, painting, portraiture, religion, and mythology, and assigned the lower ranks to genre paintings, landscapes, and still life with animals. So this structuring of importance has relegated nature to the bottom ranks and still impacts our relationship with nature today. And Whistle Jacket somehow breaks that paradigm because at the time you couldn't really use, or let's say you shouldn't really use, such a large canvas for a subject that is not religious, mythological, or important in a historical sense. So we have a contradiction here, a massive canvas that tells us, please look at me, I have something important to tell you. And yet what we see 
is a horse. A beautiful horse, for that matter. This is anatomically accurate. This is realism at its best. And it doesn't have a rider. So that's really the issue or the great groundbreaking moment with Whistle Jacket. The tradition of art history from Jacques-Louis David to Velasquez and Rubens and all the other great equestrian portraitists had trained us to see horses in the service of a king or a powerful royal. Or let's say that the, the horse elevates hum- the human, right? Literally and metaphorically. It's a smart animal. It's an animal we train, an animal we train to work with us, and it follows our orders. But at the same time, it's strong and it's fast. So all these attributes that we associate to the horse then are transferred to the rider. That's why Napoleon is most often seen on a horse. It would elevate him, make him look taller and more powerful than he was as an individual. Whistlejacket also stands out because it's a painting of a specific animal rather than a generic representation. He was an Arabian thoroughbred racehorse that belonged to the Marquess of Rockingham. Whistlejacket was known to be difficult to manage, but had won many races before he retired as a stud. Owning a horse of this kind is a reason of great pride amongst those who can afford a horse like this. So again, the the representation of horses of a certain kind, the thoroughbred, always links to an idea of power and wealth. After all, the aristocracy liked horse racing and gambling. It was uh, what defined the activities of the higher class. But then what this painting does, that it's unprecedented, is that Stubbs gives the horse psychological depth. So you can look at the eyes of the horse here and actually see a return of the gaze. The horse is looking back at us and it looks somewhat frightened or uneasy about our presence. This is the first time in the history of art that an artist endowed an animal with this level of psychological presence. And it really becomes the watershed in the representation of animals. Moving from the National Gallery in London to the National Galleries in Scotland, we see another triumph in animal paintings in Edwin Landseer's The Monarch of the Glen. Landseer was one of Queen Victoria's favorite animal portraitists, and this painting became particularly popular when it was used on prints and advertising in the 19th century. It became such an iconic image that has continued to inspire company logos to this day. He was a master, again, of realism when it came to the representation of animals, but he anthropomorphized these animals to a certain degree, and we can actually go as so far as to say that he anthropomorphized them as much that during the first 20 to 30 years of the last century, they tragically went out of fashion because people started to find them a little bit deceiving and and not quite true to what animals are. One of his most famous and perhaps best examples is the Monarch of the Glen that he painted in 1851. Now, uh, this is a representation of a stag that has 12 points on his antlers, which in deer terminology actually makes him a royal stag, not a monarch stag, which actually has 16 points. That's the technical uh, aspect uh, of the representation. But never mind the slight inaccuracy between title and, and the representation of the animals. You can see that Lanzier's Monarch of the Glen is not trying to endow the animal with a psychology that it's true to the animal and the behavior of the animal itself, like we saw in Stubbs previously, but is actually humanizing the stag 
to a point that it almost looks like a human in disguise. So if you encounter a stag in the woods, you always usually notice that they tend to be a little messy. You know, their behavior is, is very animal-like. They're just not like us. But clearly, Lanzir is interested in communicating a sense of pride, a sense of decorum, the strength and masculinity that this painting exudes ultimately turns the animal into an actor performing a human role. And I'm not saying that this is terrible. You know, there's, there's charm in this, but it's another way in which like symbolism, you know, where we look at an animal but see a human virtue or a human vice. This is another way in which we have sort of hollowed animals to tell human stories. We would be remiss in this age of the Tiger King if we didn't take a look at one of the most famous representations of a tiger in Western art history. Henri Rousseau's Surprised shows a tiger crouching on his front legs, almost hovering above the foliage pictured. The leaves and branches are shown whipping to the side as they're lashed by rain. In the background, two streaks of lightning are seen in the distance. The tiger's eyes appear afraid, which begs the question, is he poised to strike as we might think of a tiger, or is he cowering in fear? Back in my days when I studied art history at school, we used to call Rousseau a naive artist, and that's because he didn't receive classical training throughout his lifetime. He worked as a custom officer throughout his life, but nonetheless, he nurtured this love for painting and the representation of animals as well as exotic scenarios, which were tied into the primitivist excitement for anything that looked uh, other than European at the time in France. Of course, that's a colonialist strand and it's problematic and controversial today, but I find uh, some of Henry Rousseau's paintings uh, less problematic than others and especially surprised. I think it's a really interesting example of how he found a way to paint animals in an anti-heroic way, in a way that it's not necessarily sublime. Like Lanzier's animals tended to be always sublime, perfected, beautiful, young, strength, and, and decorum were the values that he pursued. And instead, what we see here is an uncertain tiger. The, the title is mysterious because we don't know if it refers to the tiger or to a prey that's been surprised by the tiger. The implication here is the tiger might be surprised by the lightning we see on the upper part of the painting. And the uncertain tiger becomes an absolute turning point in the way in which we usually are not trained to look at these animals. When we want to look at tigers, lions, you know, the big cats, it's because we want emotion. And artists have actually indulged us in providing that all the time. You know, John Berger's Why Look at Animals is a great essay in which he talks about how photography has, for instance, trained us and got us used to see animals always in action. And the, tr the same is very true for art history and, uh, and generally for the representation of animals in the wild. But in this case, what's also fascinating is that Rousseau didn't travel abroad. So these paintings are not made in the jungle anywhere. And they're actually produced in a very modern way. He would go to uh, the Jardin des Plantes in Paris, the greenhouses there, the zoo and the Natural History Museum, sketch his subjects from leaves to animals and then put them all together. He also sourced from natural history illustration. So he, despite being naive, let's say as a, a way to create art, he was actually thoroughly modern. He was anticipating many ways 
in which artists will create art more freely during the 20th century. And then you have this beautiful layering of leaves that pretty much introduces an iteration of collage that would be very influential to Picasso. You know, Picasso and Matisse really loved the work of Rousseau. And this daring ability to even paint rain and lightning, objects that uh, classical art always swayed away from because they're so difficult to capture. So you have an aid painting that actually schools classical artists properly. You know, this is a, a tour de force of incredible mastery. Think of Damien Hirst's shark sculpture or Louise Bourgeois' spiders. Artists continue to depict animals in their work to this day, and they're drawing on the subject for a number of symbolic and aesthetic reasons. Over the past 20 years, we've seen a major change in the history of the representation of animals. Artists are so much more concerned with thinking about the subjectivity of animals, understanding how we've subjugated animals over time. That's also because through the ways in which we treat animals, we can understand the ways in which we treat ourselves. And sometimes looking at cruelty, general animal rights, and the idea of animal farming helps us understand how we can avoid treating each other in ways that are less than human. So there are a number of artists, contemporary artists, who have actually embraced natural history methodologies and turned them upon their heads to make us aware of how objectification can be not the most productive ways in which to think about nature itself. I'm thinking about Abbas Akhavan, Marcus Coates, Pierre Wieg. Thomas Saraceno works with spiders, you know, animals that have not really been represented in art before in prominent ways have become prominent. Or even artists like Alora and Casadilla from Puerto Rico, who have created a beautiful video work called The Great Silence in collaboration with Ted Chang, in which a colony of almost extinct parrots is asking us questions about, and of course it's anthropomorphic and very poetic, but imagine a parrot who can speak, let's say like a human, asking us, why don't you care about us? Why are you not interested in the way we speak and why you spend this huge amounts of money and resources creating uh, the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, which is designed to detect extraterrestrial life? So they basically, the parrot is basically asking us, why are you not interested in the forms of intelligence that are here around you and that have been here all along the way and insist in looking elsewhere? And I think it's very touching and a very valid question. You know, we've, we've liked to think of animals as less intelligent than us because it keeps us at the top of the evolutional, evolutional chain, but it's also impoverished our world. It's a strange, perverse desire to look at everything around us and think we live on a dumb planet where animals don't understand anything, when actually that isn't true. It's a matter of communication. It's a matter of accessing somebody else's language. It's a matter of understanding somebody else's dance and the reasons why certain things may or may not make sense to us is not the point. There's also beauty in understanding the fact that the animals will be impenetrable at times. And instead of reading that impenetrability as stupidity, our challenge now is to accept it as diversity. That's it for this episode. My thanks to Giovanni for helping give context to such a large topic. 
If you're interested in exploring this subject even further, Giovanni is the editor of the journal Antennae, which explores themes in nature and art and visual materials. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and tell one friend you think may be interested in checking out this series. Your recommendations and reviews help keep Art Matters going. As always, thank you for listening and please join us again next time.